Welcome to Under the Skin, where I ask what's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, of the history we are told. This show is sponsored by me and my Rebirth Tour. The next couple of shows are sold out, but there's still some tickets available for Salford, 2nd of August. Tunbridge Wells, 20th of September. Torquay, madam, 27th of September. Leicester, 3rd of October. Go to russellbrand.com for tickets. Now it's time for Under the Skin. Have a look. Don't eat it. Welcome to Under the Skin with me, Russell Brand. Under the Skin, we look under the superficial, cutaneous surface of issues, individuals, histories, myths and stories. Today, we will be talking to Will Storr, an award-winning writer, a man who, if you were to accuse him of being a photographer for even a moment, he would smash any camera in the district. His features have appeared in various publications, including The Guardian, The Times, The Observer and GQ. He's the author of critically acclaimed books, The Heretics, Adventures with the Enemies of Science, and the novel The Hunger and the Howling of Killian Lone. We're here to talk about his book Selfie, among other things, and topics that come off Selfie, to discover the ideal of where the perfect idea of self came from, why it's so powerful, and whether there is any way to break it dangerous spell. Do you think that's a fair introduction, Will? I think that's extremely fair. Thank you, Russell. Thanks for coming on our show, mate. It's really nice to talk to you. Now, this is one of those ones where, like, I don't, we don't know each other, but we've had quite a good chat before the podcast has started, haven't we? We have a very good chat, yeah. We plunged right in with the nature of reality as experienced through computer games, which is a pretty good place to start, because one of the things with this point in this podcast, mate, is to... I'm going to university, doing this course, Religion and Global Politics. It it gave me a thirst and an excitement for knowledge. I've always been proud of my autodidactism and always thought, I don't need to go and learn nothing. And then actually I've learned some things. I think, no, it's really good to distill and to understand and have some of the language of academia. So that's the point of it, just as you know. What's uh, this book, Selfie? I've just read a brief intro and obviously I understand what that modern term means. But what do you want people to get from reading that book, mate? Well, what it is is the it's the it's the story of the Western self. So what it's doing is saying that you know in in our modern culture we're surrounded by this image of the perfect self, and it's a really particular kind of odd image. It's this person in their twenties and they have this flat stomach and they are kind of are very entrepreneurial and they're kind of globally minded and they kind of look a certain way and act a certain way. Uh, and, it, and it's really sort of it's telling the story of you know who is this person and kind of how it how did it come to be. What do you reckon it does come from? Classicism? Yeah, so I think the story really begins for me two and a half thousand years ago in ancient Greece. And I I was really sort of amazed by this whole body of psychological research I came across that that talks about this idea of the geography of thought. And it's this idea that who we are as a people is very much a product of, uh, well, back then it was geography. So in ancient Greece, it was a really particular and unusual place. So it wasn't like a nation which you think of it today, it's like 100 individual city-states. And there was a very particular ecology in ancient Greece. So it's mostly 
I mean, I'm sure you've been to Greece, but like it's mountains descending to sea and little rocky islands. So what you couldn't do in ancient Greece was you couldn't be like a farmer. Like in East Asia, there was like big, big irrigation projects, there's big rice growing projects. So to get along and get ahead in at the same time, yeah, at the same time in in East Asia, uh, you, you you know you, you had to be a part of a, of a big collective enterprise. But in ancient Greece, it was different. You had to be a hustler because there was no big industry, so you had to be a potter or a or you know, had to be, make olive oil, or had to be a fisherman, and um, and so you had to be you had to sort of push yourself forwards. And the other, the other kind of ramification of, of, of it being so coastal was that they started trading with all these other countries, and so that they began sharing ideas and um, coming across sort of new and novel ideas, and that kind of encourages this this, this um, uh, tradition of debate. So debate was like a big thing that you could do, and and so so, so the, the ecology forms this kind of way of being this kind of individualistic way of seeing the world and then from that comes all these ideas of you know what is a human what a human is this kind of individual node of potential perfection and um, destiny rather than us being a collective you know a part of a, a just one kind of node in a kind of collective reality so uh, you know and, and then you, you see interesting things in ancient greece beginning obviously there's the myth of narcissus which is obviously you know, very, very um relevant today but things like they, they venerate celebrity do yeah. the um, myth of narcissus just in case people listening to this they don't know nothing about narcissus although if they've been listening to me for any length of time <laughs> they have a pretty good idea <laughs> well that's it so, so in, in ancient greece that you know they they, they 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 had they had this kind of version of celebrity and and, and they would tell you know these these great myths and one of one of them is of course is this guy Narcissus who fell in love with his own own image, um, and the other thing that you get like, literally, doesn't it? You see yeah. his reflection, and he thought, "Oh my god, this guy is absolutely you know, gorgeous." Yeah. yeah, that's right. He's lovely. Yeah. yeah, I think I'd like to get in there and <laughs> snog him. And then he, did he drown? I think he drowned. Yeah, yeah. In a way, it's stupid, like not to go. Hold on a minute. I was at a lake a moment ago, and he is wearing those earrings and that top I put on. No, yeah, that's my <laughs> reflection. But I suppose the point of a myth. Sorry about that noise. We, we're in this place where there's continual construction. Maybe it's a metaphor. Uh, like, uh, like it, it's. It, I suppose the point of that myth is about how it's easy to get lost in the self and to make the self total, and that's why it's relevant to your book. Yeah, and it's no that coincidence that that's an ancient Greek myth because it was this. It was this whole environment where the individual was seen as this node of kind of possibility. And so I contrast this in selfie with what was going on in, in, in East Asia at the time. And that was you know, the, the land of Confucius. And so to get along and get ahead in, in East Asia, you had to uh, you know, be part of this sort of big group. Um, and their idea of the perfect self was totally opposite to the Aristotelian notion. Uh, you know, their, their idea of, of somebody who seeks notoriety was, was known as the inferior self. And the superior mm. self doesn't seek that notoriety. So, and, and, and so that, that all feels like ancient history, and it is ancient history, but it's all really relevant today. So when these psychologists do these studies on, uh, on, on Westerners versus East Asians, they say that they, they literally see the world in, in a different way. So if you put a Westerner in front of a... They, they, it's like they, they show a video of a fish tank for three seconds. Yeah. And at the front of a fish tank is this very flashy, show-offy, narcissistic kind of fish, right? And... Um, uh, uh, yeah. Sounds like a bloody good guy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, and, and they monitor the, the movement of, the, of your eyeballs every millisecond. And what they find is that if you're a Westerner, you will pretty much be studying that individualistic, narcissistic fish at the front. But if you're from East Asia, your eye will be constantly moving and judge, looking at the context. So they're literally seeing the world in a different way. And this has major ramifications, even down to how we take selfies. So when, you, when, they, when they study the content of selfies, East Asian selfies are much more likely to be a big group of mates, a big gang of people together. But Western selfies are much more focused on the individual narcissistic face.
So huge sort of huge ramifications. And it all begins with the ecology of our people two and a half thousand years ago, which I just found extraordinary. Well, I like that story, mate. That's a good story. I like the thing about that little show of fish. I just can't stop thinking about him. I want to see him. He sounds like a right little lovely Nemo. I'd like to get him right out of there. If me, they'd have tried to track my own eye movements. They'd have gone, oh, he's looking at it. He's putting his hand in the fish tank. He's picked that fish up. He's kissing it and cuddling it, giving it his own name. He's took it off. Can't wait, come back here. And then they'd have to follow me on CCTV footage as I darted off. So... Like it, the things that we think of as essential, such as our attitude towards individualism, are themselves constructs, and you can trace historical narratives. The other thing I thought was a bit interesting, like because we had him in here, that Yanis Varoufakis, he couldn't have been cleverer. He said one of the things he said, which I liked, and I've been saying it myself ever since then, and sometimes I don't credit him with it. Said, <laughs> There's no such thing as self, he says. He goes, uh, we exist in dialectic, we exist in conversation with others. In fact, I think it's even in my stand-up now, and I like it. It's wonderful. It's a good bit. Like I talk about the, the notion of, like, you know, how can you individually exist without relationship? You know, so, like, like, and he is actually Greek, isn't he? The other thing I was thinking about is, like, you know, like the, the tradition of democracy within reason come out of Greece, didn't it? Because the thing I was thinking about when he was talking about those, the atomized and entrepreneurial society which fated individualism also had... Slavery in it that might yeah, be part yeah, of it. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, None of course, of we're talking about the graft, bloody lazy bastards. <laughs> yeah, we're talking about two and a half thousand years ago. So democracy, yeah, but still wasn't right. It, Will it was a narrow was uh, number of men that could vote for that. Yeah. It was only fifty years that democracy. It was, it was a kind of a bit of a flash in the pan. But the fact that it came to existence even for that narrow range of men, years. yeah, was um, was pretty extraordinary. Because if you think of that in these days, though, fifty years—that's ages. You'd think, wouldn't you? Like, what was fifty years ago now? The sixties. You think like you know that's like the well, the Beatles. So like you know, but like if something if we created some sort of utopia that yeah. lasted for fifty years, yeah. it was a de- democratic utopia. But regardless, what you're saying is that the crucible of individualism, as we regard it, started there with this particular tradition that we can contrast to uh, a different tradition. And to this day, yeah. you can see even in simple prosaic examples such as a selfie or yeah. how people bog out a show of fish <laughs> yeah and also a major one so what you know one of the this guy richard nisbet who's the professor who kind of studies this he's a pioneer of this kind of thought so he said to me that um you know in china for example the idea of somebody suffering unfairly for the benefit of the group is far more acceptable to them to us that's a horrific human rights abuse but it's much more acceptable in that culture because they privilege the group over the individual so there, there are also bad effects to this i'm, I'm an not an example of, of someone suffering for their group well, so some of the human rights abuses that the communist oh, dictator... They don't mind that. Well, I mean, so they don't mind it, but they're, but they're much more prepared to kind of tolerate it We don't mind the human are. rights abuse. <laughs> so, 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 is, is that, for the group. <laughs> yeah, they privilege the group. And, and you know, I talked to a, a Japanese anthropologist who talks about, you know, the culture in Japan that a, a CEO of a company might commit suicide if they've let the company down, and that might be seen as an honourable act in Japan still today. Right. Well, at least he killed himself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he did the right thing. Yeah, that's almost a cliche, though, isn't it? Like, uh, like sort of the kamikaze idea and yeah. sort of slightly different. I'm sure it's less prevalent today, but I mean, to her, she, she was saying that it's still, see, it's still kind of generally understood as they understand why you would do that. And she said, even in informal parties, if you, uh, she, said, she said, you'll introduce yourself to somebody as, hello, I'm Sony's David. You, you won't say, I'm David. And then it comes up in conversation. A bit later on that you work for Sony, you say, hello, I'm Sony's David. So the idea of the group is much more 
front and centre in their consciousness. All right, I'm David. Look at my <laughs> biceps. Have a look at my new shoes. Oh, hello, David. Get out of my way. You're going to eat that shrimp salad? Oh, that's for everybody. I'm eating the lot. Oh, by the way, I work for Sony. That's why I'm here. That's, that's it. You, that's Aristotle. And yeah, yeah. And But then why would you identify with the corporate entity? I suppose they say, well, do you think that capitalism does this? That it means that because everything is stripped and made into an economic model, that people don't feel any sort of sense of purpose or identification other than their own individual sort of identification with themselves because communal values have been sort of radically and dramatically broken down over time till all we think of ourselves are as consumers that becomes our role yeah we've got no social order well that's the story that uh, handily that selfie tells absolutely so so so, so at the beginning of the book we begin with how the ecology led to a certain way of being and it introduces kind of the foundational idea of the book and that is that when we're born, it's as if the brain asks that one fundamental question. It says, who do I have to be in this environment in order to get along and get ahead in this tribe that I'm in? And, you know, and there are sort of various interesting sort of neurobiological things that happen. Um, you know, the brain kind of carves itself down. There's a f- function called neural pruning where it actually carves itself down um, to kind of meet the culture that it finds itself immersed in. And uh, you're right. So, you know, during the middle part of the 20th century, it was actually much more of a collective time in the West in both, you know, it was a time of welfare state, it was a time of unionisation, it was a time of uh, regulation on banking and business, it was a time of job for life. And what sprang out of that environment? Well, the hippies. You know, we had this very communalistic worldview. And if you compare who we were in 1965 to who we became in 1985, that's just 20 years, that's half a generation. It's an absolute transformation in who, who we are. What happened right in the middle of those dates? Neoliberalism. Thatcher and Reagan came along and said, right, forget all this collectivisation. I found this interview that Thatcher did in 1981, really quite sinister, where this guy from the Standard Times said, right, Mar- Margaret Thatcher, you know, what's your plans? What are you going to do? And she said, oh, you know, the thing that's made me kind of very cross about our policies for the last 30 years is they've been very collective. And, and I want to sort of bring back individualism. And that's a kind of, I'm paraphrasing there. But what, and then, and then what she said is the object is, e- uh, sorry, the method is economics, but the object is to change the soul. She wanted oh to, yeah, God. I mean, it's sinister. And it's especially because that's exactly what she did. Is economics, <laughs> but the method no, the method is economics, but the object is to change the soul. <laughs> that's exactly what she said. I yeah. like Margaret. I mean, not uh, actually as a person, but as a character. Don't you sometimes look at people detached from the actual reality and what they historically did, and just sort of think of them as a character? Because like Margaret Thatcher, my mate G said he had to write a poem about her once, like for you know, like I don't know, state when she had that de facto state funeral. I'm like. He said he looked at videos to inspire him, and he said when he watched it, he sort of think, "Oh my God, she's brilliant!" Because she's so forceful and powerful, and the very opposite of the insipid managerial technocrats that find themselves in position of government today, with the notable, notable exception of Donald Trump. But like, mm, so like there was a clear. That's very. That is a curious observation that there was a sort of an agenda to change the way that the individual saw their relationship with society yeah. at an essential level. Yeah, and, but I mean, you know, so she, obviously she had no understanding of this Richard Nisbet work because it hadn't happened yet, but she was absolutely <laughs> right in, in what she did. I mean, and it happens really quickly. So in 1982, what you find is something really weird happening in our maternity wards. So for generations, parents called their children by, you know, Richard, Elizabeth, Margaret, like ordinary names. And suddenly you get parents... Um, finding unusual and distinctive and kind of crazy names for their kids because they want their, their children, in the words of the psychologist that found this out, to stand out and be a star. It's the beginning of the keep fit revolution. And then by the middle of the 80s, we have the, we have the yuppies, you know. So, 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 so we start changing because 
who we have to be in order to get along and get ahead has been redefined by neoliberalism. Of course, ne- you know, as you know, neoliberalism is this idea that you know they wanted to gamify all of human society. They wanted to turn human life into a massive competition of self versus self. So get rid of the welfare state as much as possible. Get rid of the unions. Get rid of all that red tape, as they called it. Everybody has to look after themselves. And, you know, that's what we find today. You know, young, young people are these very ancient Greek nodes of individual profit and they're, they're brands, they're entrepreneurial. You know, it's kind of Thatcher's wet dream in a way, disturbingly. It's kind of, it's kind of what we see today. I'm just thinking about Margaret Thatcher having a wet dream. <laughs> thinking about the clammy gusset of Maggie Thatcher. And I don't dislike the idea, I'll be honest with you, Will. I'm enjoying it. I may revisit that Meryl Streep film, The Iron Lady, with this in mind. Well, she's dreaming of millennials. That's who, that, that, those are the people that are in that dream. But do you, right, so, okay, so you talked about the plasticity of the mind pruning itself to be uh, operable in whatever context it finds itself in. But if there, you know, this is a 50 years, be it a sort of a period of a democratic blip in ancient Greece or the journey from collectivism to massive individualism from the 60s to present day. It's a small period of time, excuse me, from an evolutionary perspective. So don't you reckon that there's nothing to worry about, really, and we'll be able to turn people nice as pie in the shake <laughs> of a lamb's tail? Well, I think there are, there are um, causes for optimism. So in the book, you know, I, I, I write about sort of Trump and Brexit. I know we don't think about those things in terms of optimism usually, but um, you know, I, I kind of connect those with the rise of Corbyn because I think what we're seeing is the beginnings of a mass rebellion against neoliberalism. You could be a handsome young Jeremy Corbyn yourself, if you don't mind me saying. <laughs> oh, thank you, Russell. Uh, well, I'll take that as a compliment. There'll be a picture, there'll be a video of us talking so you'll be able to see that yeah well it is a compliment isn't it because what i started to like about jeremy corbyn was like he was he's still and sort of like you know like before all of the sort of hubbub of the last election and the you know the various leadership campaigns within the labor party there was an idea that he was a bit fuddy-duddy and you can see they've sharpened him up suit wise but like and haircut wise and beard wise but now what I, i like is this sort of stillness and when he's on things being sort of badgered and berated that he has a kind of like not at all he's been through it so many times you know i i kind of like it and Yes, evidently it is what I felt like, you know, if there is a corollary between Trump and Corbyn, it's authenticity, that these are both people that feel genuine and like there's an integrity. We talked to Naomi Klein and she said, yeah, but Donald Trump's a massive liar. But there's a brazenness to Donald Trump. Yeah. There's something brazen that like yeah. compared to the like the Hillary Clinton and other autocrat politicians. Well, when he's going on about how Obama is the founder of ISIS, that's fairly brazen. Huh? I know, it makes you think, <laughs> wow, this guy will say anything. All right. Be president. <laughs> Give it a yeah. go. Why not? Yeah, the but, but, are boring. But 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 I think what 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 we what we forget to do sometimes in all our ra- outrage about Donald Trump is actually look at what he was saying. So what he was saying during that campaign was, I'm going to build a wall with Mexico and I'm going to make Apple put a factory in Wisconsin and things like this. And Steve Bannon, his right hand man, was going. The problem is we've gutted the the middle class in America. We've built a middle class in Asia. And you know that's true. And, and so 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 what he was mounting was an argument against globalization. That's what that's what he campaigned on. And of course, globalization is the neoliberal project. What neoliberals want is to create of the world one single perfect global market. And if you're a right wing person with a right wing brain and you, you you are fed up with neoliberalism. That's going to be what you're thinking about. It's globalization. It's immigrants. It's, you know, all these foreigners coming in here and knocking our wages down. But if you're a left wing person looking at exactly the same problem, you're going to be looking in a different direction. You're going to be looking at regulation. We need more regulation. We need to cut this inequality. We need to sort out these terrible house prices. We need to cut student debt. So, 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 so it feels to me like these sort of these big political 
earthquakes, to use a terrible cliche, that have happened are both responses to the same problem, just but from opposite ends of the political spectrum. There are, they are, they are responses against neoliberalism. So I really do feel that this is the, the, begin, the, kind of the tumultuous beginning of a big period of, well, revolution um, in, you know, in, in our lifetimes. The, the, the worrying thing is, though, because there's such different worldviews attacking the same problem, it's going to be a period of conflict, I think. I think new worldviews are going to emerge because I would like to defy those taxonomies and systems of categorization. This is what I think could could occur that because information can be proliferated so rapidly now I think it's possible Will that you know that, talk to me a little bit before I go on one of my rants <laughs> talk to me a little bit about what you're saying about like uh, the, the bogus self-esteem revolution and, and it's reappropriation of sort of religious and spiritual principles tell, us, tell me what yeah, you mean so about the heart that. the heart of selfie I did a big big long investigation into the self-esteem movement because I, this is the what was the self-esteem and movement what is it well it's, it's this idea engine. <laughs> it's like it comes out of the human potential movement of the 60s and 70s in America so like, is that est and all that uh, Est comes out of it, so, so it actually begins at Esalen, the Esalen Institute Esalen. In, in in Big Sur, in California. Where I actually I've been went there, actually. Yeah, I went there for the book. I've just, I, I go and do a big sort of. What did you do a course? Did you ever do a workshop? I was in a really nice hotel down the road, and they, <laughs> told, and they told me there's this thing down there, and I remember seeing it in an Adam Curtis documentary. I thought I'll go have a look at them. I went there to have a look at them, and they were, weren't doing anything. I thought it was. You know, they were doing like yoga workshops and yeah, stuff. Yeah, well, I did what this course called the Max, which was this horrific kind of thing about finding your authenticity but it's, it's very similar to the um uh, workshops they were doing in the 60s and 70s um uh, but, but it, that was all based on these ideas of human potential well that what was going on in those 60s and 70s wasn't it like being in the nude screaming at your own genitals yeah yeah so i tell these horrific Just stories another from thursday night for me <laughs> from esalen they call them encounter groups so the idea so so it's like imagine sort of big brother but 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 much more intense you'd be shut in a room uh, for hours and hours and hours and then with complete strangers and your job was to be as honest as possible to that stranger oh I'd hate that well people had nervous breakdowns I'd you know. have a nervous breakdown you, when you said it I nearly had one because yeah. <laughs> if I started saying all the things going in my head I'd be locked up because there's too much going on in there but the, but the, but, but the reason they thought that was a good idea is it, it, important to understand is because there was this big revolution in America in thinking so for generations back through Freud back through all of Christianity the idea of what a human being is is a human being is bad there's original sin, there's Oedipus complex, we are bad. And then in poster America, this guy called Carl Rogers comes along and has this new idea. He says, actually, no, that's wrong. Human beings are amazing. They're fantastic. They're full of latent potential. And what we need to do to... Well, he just turns out out of nowhere and says everything's <laughs> wrong. Humans are brilliant. Well, he was extremely influential, uh, uh, you know, uh, and... Um... Where's, his, where's he getting his... Uh bloody sort of you know backbone from how come he can come out with such a contrary point and everyone goes no humans are horrible as (laughs) we've always said what has he got well again i think it comes out of the economy so uh, you know so in post-war america the economy was 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 changing massively so there was a big exodus of people from um the uh, the country into cities uh women were now in the work in the workforce much more following the second world war so it was the era of corporation man of suburbia of revolutionary road so it's a much more optimistic personality focused time mm. so again it's it's always economy that underpins these big yes, changes it is, isn't it and the big social movements and it seems yeah. to me that the reason that that may have had sort of tacit relevance is because both the projects of urbanization corporatization and mass industrialization are all turning people into a bloody great big lump <laughs> 
And so you need an accompanying myth of individualism as a sort of tonic so that you can get through your job where you're doing bugger all and your individualism is reduced to, yeah, you can buy this phone if you want. Well, that's it. I, that I, washing machine. I, I think the historical, kind of traditional historical theory about how the world changes is a bit wrong for exactly those reasons. Is, it, is, it, is that they tell that crazy story of if somebody comes along with a new idea and everybody just flocks and goes, yeah, that's a great new idea. But that's not how it works. People have new ideas all the time, but, but we choose the person who has the idea that feels right. And it feels right because our economy is in a certain way. So it's the, it's the, it's the environment that changes first, and then we kind of lock on to somebody who has an idea that feels kind of truthy. So this was Carl Rogers. And anyway, so, so he, he, he was, the, he, he was this, this guy that kind of had this new idea. That, and that's why encounter groups came. He, he pioneered encounter groups, his idea that... In order to, to become perfect, we had to kind of you know reach this kind of inner core, or as perfect as possible, as perfect as our potential allowed us to be. And so, from Esseling, like there's something in that, does there? Will like you know that, that going on a, ver- a journey of self-discovery and honesty would be useful for an individual. Yeah, but 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 there's a couple of problems with it, and one of them is that is that you know what is the authentic self? You know the, this idea that if we just strip away all the all, all the planet, you know, manners and niceties. Um, uh, uh, that society layers upon us that we, there is this perfect inner self. I mean, that, that isn't true. Um, you know, in a sense, you know, there is no such thing as the authentic self. With the with a big caveat, though, that we do have a distinct personality, yeah. you know, a biogenic kind of personality. So, so, anyway, sorry, so, so out of these ideas comes the self-esteem movement of the 1980s. So John Vasconcellos was this very powerful Californian politician who, uh, uh, who knew Carl Rogers and got sort of mentored him and in the 80s in the, in the neoliberal 80s he, he had kind of a, a kind of a neoliberal kind of remix of these excellent ideas so he decided that, that he called self-esteem a social vaccine he literally thought it was this medicine that we'd all take self-esteem the self-esteem medicine uh, and um, cocaine yeah yeah take your self-esteem medicine <laughs> That, oh my God! I'm brilliant. <laughs> but no, but that you, that's you joke. But that's what he thought. He he thought the self-esteem was going to cure homelessness, domestic violence, uh, in a teenage pregnancy, drug abuse, everything. And and not only that, he thought he was going to make us more competitive contestants in this great neoliberal game. So he 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 was the second most powerful calif- uh, politician in California, mm. and he uh, proposed he set up this three-year task force to investigate self-esteem. And he said, that it, you know, I'm going to get these these scientists to to to, to to prove that there is a causative link here, that if we give people higher self-esteem, they'll become more perfect. They'll become better neoliberal kind of contestants and they'll happier and healthier. So, so fast forward three years, he tells the world, I've done it. The scientists agree with me. <laughs> self-esteem is a social vaccine. It's an amazing transformation. At the beginning, everyone's laughing at this idiot from California. Like, this is joke. He's, he's literally a national joke. Johnny Carson's cracking jokes about this thing uh, on The Tonight Show. You know, he, he's, he, he's a laughing stock. But then he comes out with this news. I've done it. I've got these seven University of California professors uh, to study the data and they've they've backed me up self-esteem is a social vaccine and he's everywhere then he's he's flown to the soviet union to talk to the communists about self-esteem he's on oprah talking about self-esteem and then of course oprah gets hold of the idea and it goes everywhere Uh, he he becomes this kind of celebrity and the idea goes around the world and it changes everything it changes the way we raised our children it changes the way we teach our children it's that whole era which i think we both grew up in of you're wonderful you're special you're amazing of a, a, you know, a rosette for fo- coming 14th place in the sports day. And, and what you see in the psychological data is from the 1990s. <laughs> uh, uh, no, no rosette for you. Narcissism starts going up. 
So, so we start raising raising a generation of children who are more narcissistic year by year than than the than, than the kind of cohort that came before them. And of course, that's the selfie generation. That is, these are the millennials. And and so what I do in the in the book is I go back to I spent a year investigating John Vasconcellos, who's since died, and his task force. And what what'd you I, do? What do you mean investigate him? What you I tracked do? down task force members. I went to there's a big archive in um, Sacramento. The selfies, all their documents. I've got all their documents. I've got audio recordings of their meetings. Good was it? It was amazing because I mean, I th- what, what some people knew was that there was a there was a problem. The data didn't kind of say what Vasco, Vasco, everyone called him Vasco. I call him Vasco. What Vasco um, said it said. But I tracked down, you know, one task force member who described the whole operation in, in his words as a fucking lie. <laughs> and he said, he, he, he said, he said, I was in a room he with the nail on the head. <laughs> he said, I was in a room with Vasco when he saw the scientific reports for the first time, and he said. If the legislature, who, who fund them, if the legislature see what's in these reports, they're going to shut our task force down. And he said from that moment on, the whole thing got covered up. So this incredibly consequential exercise in changing who we are, which really did have a big impact on who we are today, was, uh, as I kind of sort of reveal in Selfie, really, was based on a massive delay and a deliberate cover-up. And I even tracked down this guy called Andrew Mecca, who was his right-hand man, who cheerfully admitted to me when I interviewed him, yeah, we covered it up. Yeah, we covered it up. We, you know, we, we, we deliberately went out on a mission to kind of spin our way out of this problem that the scientists were saying that there is no causative link here between self-esteem and all these virtuous, amazing results. Well, the, well, the scientists just went, mate, we've done some research. Yeah. Your idea's crap. Yeah, I mean, I actually, I actually found a tape recording of the, of the meeting at which the lead scientist, a guy um, uh, who's a sociologist, um, called Dr. Neil Smelser, I actually found an audio recording of the meeting in which he announced to the group what the results were and he was basically saying you know we're not getting what you want us to get you know where where we are seeing a link between self-esteem and good outcomes we're not sure if it's causative or not so what he's saying is for example in education you can see that people who have high good exam results have better self-esteem so what vasco thought was that the self-esteem was causing the good exam results but actually results was causing the self-esteem exactly Exactly. So, so it's, yeah, and then I found another tape from a, f- a couple of months later where, where people, including this guy These I, I interviewed... These people are getting blowjobs all day. <laughs> they, they, such good self-esteem. I, I found a tape with this... And me- that's making people suck their cock. <laughs> I just want to suck that esteem right out of their belly pipe. <laughs> Sorry about that. So, so I've, I've also found a meeting of, uh, of this kind of rebellion that happened at this meeting, including the guy that I tracked down, where they stood up and they said, I'm really uncomfortable with what you're saying to the media because we're saying that we found this link and we haven't got this link so so, 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 so come on shut up it's all right yeah it was just sort of well, like, it was all kind of hushed he sounds like away. he just wanted to get stuff done like he was like because i would have thought self-esteem is a good thing well there's healthy self-esteem is a good thing so so there's a guy called professor roy baumeister who i also tracked down who is the guy that kind of busted You've been this tracking if one down i know yeah we didn't have much tracking down i just found his email and emailed him but but, but he said there is such a thing <laughs> you didn't as... have to be outside <laughs> looking at pebbles or no. <laughs> oh, no, yeah. twigs bloke there he yeah. is yeah i'd have to get like an aboriginal Googled tracker it. to uh, find him but no, he, he, yeah of course he said there is such a thing as healthy self-esteem but if, if he's earned so you know oh, einstein oh. had really good self-esteem did he well probably we guess yeah, uh, he, and he must have because he didn't bother dressing up did he said i'll just have that pair of trousers twice thanks that'll do me i'm off to do some maths and that's einstein everyone but also <laughs> as, as, i mean roy baumeister is an interesting guy because his father was a literal nazi his father fought with the nazis in the second world war and, and as roy baumeister said hitler had high self-esteem too and you know well it would appear <laughs> he certainly believed in many of his ideas didn't he 
Yeah, absolutely. Mm, he's a mystery. He's a mystery, old Hitler, isn't he? Because <laughs> I think he might have been a bit down on himself at times when he was on his own and felt terrible. Well, that's the self-esteem myth. See, the self-esteem myth says says that all kind of bad antisocial behaviours are because it's deep down you don't love yourself. How about you then? What got you off on this mission? Well, because that was that was the kind of the story of my early life. So I I was an idiot growing up. I like I, I failed all my exams. I didn't concentrate at school. Got in trouble with the police. I was alcoholic, drug abuse, like the whole stuff. Uh, and Why? all through my twenties, you know, I was in therapy for a lot of my twenties, trying to sort my head out. And the, the constant refrain from teachers at school, from the counsellors, was always, oh, you've got low self-esteem. Your parents didn't love you. I had very Victorian, you know, classic English parents. Didn't, they never, like, loved you enough, and that's why you're so unhappy. And I completely bought this. I completely believe this. And I, and I bought this idea that my problem deep down was that I didn't love myself. I had low self-esteem, and that what I had to do to cure it was to get high self-esteem. So I did all these things to get high self-esteem. And then I spoke to this Roy Baumeister guy and found out that it was all a myth. And that was only like six years ago. And it was like, oh, hang on. So you're saying that everything I thought was true about myself, this whole journey I've been on of self-improvement has been based on bullshit. And it was based on Hold bullshit. Hold a second, though, Will. The language may be um, sort of bogus, but what, like, ultimately, aren't we all looking for some sort of form of, what do I want to say, connection? It's not like you want to go around all puffed up on a steam, all mad like a bullfrog's neck, all high <laughs> as a kite on silliness. But you don't want to feel terrible feelings of worthlessness and one could imagine that a childhood that didn't have physical affection and and i don't know validation in it might lead someone to not feel yes well i think i, I think there is a, there is an element of truth in that so so where the book ends up is is with this idea of what is the self and and there is a core to everybody's sense of self and that is a lot of that story is genetic so a lot of who we are is, is down to, to just an accident of genes and so what i when i do my personality test what i am is i'm high in in the trait of neuroticism and neuroticism goes hand in hand with 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 low self esteem so if you suffer from low self esteem you're generally a high neurotic but because it's a relatively stable personality trait, it means that you can't actually do much about it. But you're right. To, so I was born with a, with a neurotic brain. If I'd have had more loving parents, I would have been brought up happier. But, but this combination of a neurotic brain and un, you know, n- parents that weren't very affectionate is, an, is a nasty combination. So I bet. It, it did have that. But, but the thing is, the point is you can't do anything about it. Once well, you've got a pretty neurotic brain, and my mum, she couldn't have given me more smothering, dear old mum. <laughs> she loved the hell out of dear old Russ. Yeah, and, and you're very confident be. as a result. So, so, well, so you not can. really. I was a terrible drug addict. Oh. I was an alcoholic and ridden with self-doubt and all that kind of stuff and a sort of fast-moving mind of a forever looking for something that probably you know isn't even there but like, don't you think like, like the, isn't the like some of the ideas that i'm interested in here will is like whether like you know whether it's a biomechanical model that we prefer over some kind of mumbo jumbo spiritual model <laughs> where the essential self is interconnected yeah and the i the, um, what's also important to me is the possibility and potentiality for change both on an individual level and a, a social cultural level and i believe in change very much because i was a drug addict and mm. now one day at a time no drugs different behaviors it different depends experience. it depends what you mean by change so of course if we if we can heal right so of course we can heal so i i'm much happier now as a 40 year old man than i was as a 22 year old i was fucking miserable as a 22 year old but i'm much happier now you know because i have a good you know a, a wife that that helps me when i'm going a bit mad and things like this so of course we can heal and you've obviously been, been on a big journey of healing but what we can't do is so the whole human potential idea that we still have very much with us today is this 
toxic lie which tells our young people you can do anything you want to do and be anything you want to be. You just have to dream big and kind of go for it. And you know, it's very inspirational, but it's also very, very dangerous because what, what it does is it tells people that when they fail, which most of us do, uh, it's their fault. And that's part of the individualism thing. We, we forget that the reasons that we fail are many and myriad and lots of them are in our environment. We blame ourselves. So the book actually begins with talking about suicide and the reasons that we kill ourselves. And, you know, the, the, sort of the model of pathway into suicide is, is one that says that we set overly high expectations for ourselves. And when we fail again and again and again and again and we feel stuck in that failure, that's when the self starts to become in a really dangerous place. How to combat that particular issue then I, I think the big societal way is we need to stop telling this lie that you can do anything you want to do and be anything you want to do we cannot transform our personality we cannot be beyonce or michael jordan because we decide that that's what we want to do you know we have we are we are animals we are biologically limited and there's nothing we can do Ooh. about that but, and, well, hold on a minute michael jordan is michael jordan and beyonce is beyonce yes yeah, so they they have a particular biology which enables and you know, a particular acculturation i mean yes, like you know upbringing you beyonce in a box and tell her she's crap for a for a first eight years of her life she's not gonna well i don't know it might make her better she might yeah. go oh, i bloody absolutely am yeah. not i'm gonna do an even better record but yeah. what i was about like but like i look the i understand that this idea of um happiness through sort of self-fulfillment in a very materialistic way was always just a marketing idea that when you sort of think of the vivid images of coca-cola and Apple and these sort of um, glorifications of the self. You know, these ideas, if you can do what you want, you know, like, is it like that, that idea, I think, is merely suggested so yeah. that you can fulfill it with a can of Coca-Cola or yeah. with, with a new iPhone. But the idea of change and potentiality, I think that this, I think, is very, very important to people. But, but I suppose where it goes wrong, perhaps, is when, it, when there's a preordained idea of what it is you're meant to be in order to be happy. Now, speaking from personal experience, I thought, oh, if I've got loads of money and I'm famous and have sex with everyone, that would be great. So I tried those things, and there were bits of it that were sensually brilliant and egotistically rewarding, but I found them all to be ultimately ultimately unfulfilling and now my life that's based on you know admittedly with economic comfort like i'm living in a degree i don't have to go out and do terrible things to get money but <laughs> you know like at all so like but like uh you know but i do but i'm living in a kind of an ordinary domestic sort of life a partner a child pets you know what i mean i'm not a hedonist anymore i'm not living a decadent life because i think i was trying to live in accordance with a myth that was untrue so i completely agree with that but my concern would be if we're left with just a biomechanical model of this is your limitations as an animal and as an individual that people might settle for yeah. a kind of life that's yeah. not fulfilling yeah so so yeah, so 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 there's a nuance here. So you know, I, I don't want to come come across like I'm attacking individualism completely. It's un, since it's not a sort of big polemic, because what you have to do as well, you know, sort of being a grown up, is take a step back and go. Actually, individualism is pretty amazing as well. Like what we've achieved in the West in two and a half thousand years is pretty amazing. We've we've done some pretty amazing stuff. Done some bad stuff. Well, like technology in that. Yeah, and you know, we look, look at New York. We built New York. You know, what I mean, we, it's like, nice. Yeah, yeah. And, and and a part of that is individual. A part of that is that we tell people you can do anything you want to do. You should shoot for the stars. 
us. But we also have a, a faulty idea of what a human being is in our culture today. We, we, we especially on the left, you know, uh, we, we like to believe that the human brain is a blank slate and that we are all born in, in a place of equal, amazing potential. And that isn't true. We all have, we are all biologically limited in different ways. So we all have different talents, different abilities. And there's a guy called Brian Little I speak to who, who, who's an expert in this kind of personality stuff who talks a lot about the damage the self-esteem myth has wrought upon our people. And, you know, and he says that we need to give people kind of, he calls them personal projects over which, uh, you know, which give them meaning but over which they have efficacy, i.e. over which, you know, which they, you know, there's no point in trying to be the fastest man in the world if you are 86 and have one leg. You know, like we, ha- we, we have to understand that, uh, you know, that the capabilities of our children and encourage them in those specific directions and not say, yeah, you can be Beyonce, just dream big. Yeah, these values and ideals are probably sort of erroneous and they're sort of established by a capitalist consumer template. These are that this constellation is populated by the idols and icons of it's the, the econ- capitalist skyscape. Absolutely right. It's the economy. So at the beginning of our chat, you know, I talked about who is this who is this hero we're surrounded by? This twenty two year old, thin stomached, big boobed Globally minded entrepreneurial bloke, and then he developed knockers. <laughs> well, whatever. I'm into yeah, this guy. of course, it's a version. You know, who who is this person? Well, this person is the hero of our culture. So we live in a neoliberal culture, neoliberal environment, and this is the hero of neoliberalism. This is the person who is most. Um, uh, 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 cut, cut out best to survive and thrive in the neoliberal environment. So this is the person our culture is trying to f- try, trying to tempt us into becoming. He's a facsimile, though. He's not real. He's, he's a myth. Uh, he's a myth. Because yeah. actually, it's sort of probably old white blokes who are sat around all pudgy <laughs> masturbating over the image that you just described because like you know that person doesn't exist it's a cipher not a fact yeah it's a, a cultural myth it's a cultural construct and we're all tormented by it to a certain extent you know we all want to be this person and of course as we get older and fatter we become less and less that person and as you know and that's why you know one of the most vulnerable groups for suicide are middle-aged men because you know when you when you hit your 40s and 50s you've come up against these limitations very much and you begin to realise I'm never going to be that person that I've, I've always been told that I ought to be. Yes, that's right. And your physical gestures, you did that, mate, very close to a Nazi salute yep. as, you, as you gestured <laughs> that the bloke was outside and above. And don't you think it's because really where we should be looking for this kind of resolution is inward, like that that's like that it's through a peaceful inner connection like one of the the repeated refrains i'm banging on about is like that all of these things that like many of the discoveries that are made by you know in the sort of world of neuroscience which i know next to nothing about uh, and uh, like in the sort of in sociology and health and stuff are already outlined in spiritual principles and as we discussed prior to us recording you know like that many of the particularities and sociocultural aspects of religious doctrine that are particular to the time of its conception, I can see that those observances ain't particularly helpful. But the perennial ideas of oneness, that of self is realised through communion with the whole, through acceptance that the material is transient and temporary, lessons that I've learned in my own life, I recognise were already bloody written down in old, old, 5,000 years old ancient texts. And when some Swami said to me in India, like, chillingly, the material world has nothing else to give you now, Russell. It can only take from you. And it made my stomach turn over when he said it. I knew he was telling the truth. I knew what he meant. Stop looking for it in fame. Stop looking for it in money. And on a daily basis, I forget. I wake up and I think, oh, you know, and that's why, again, in in classical myth, there is Prometheus who has to go through the daily 
punishment because he stole the fire, or Sisyphus, who has to continually push the rock up the hill because oh, it's an ongoing realisation because the self is an event rather than an object. The self is the conscious awareness of our own experience, which I think can be brought into alignment with a different kind of peace if we do reject that external matrix of ideas that we're supposed to be heading towards. But I wouldn't abandon the idea of a pursuit because I think that's how we can change the world with that energy, yeah, that drive. I, yeah, yeah. I, I think I, th- I think the, the one the thing that individualism gets wrong is is it in over in over emphasizing the individual is it turns it back turns its back on on the fact that we are a tribal animal. Yeah. We are we are a connected species. We spend over ninety percent of our time on this earth as members of hunter gatherer tribes of around one hundred and forty eight people. Ninety percent. So for thousands and thousands of years before thousands and thousands of years before civilization. Go on. So how long did that go on hunter gathering? Hundreds of thousands of years. I mean, so it, it went the, on yeah, and on. The, the, we were the, doing the, it. We're hunting. The, we're gathering. The, 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 yeah, well, I tried to find out a specific date for the book, but they were all wildly different. So I ended yeah. up kind of fudging it a little bit. There's loads of people <laughs> go. Oh no, hang on a minute. We found a big tribe of people. Exactly. Over there. Yeah. They cross that ice plateau. Yeah. They're always arguing about that. But we, yeah, but we have, you know, we have these tribal brains, and and, and we, as you say, we. we but we basically, are... this is a blip. The way you said that fifty-year democratic blip in ancient Greece, like Osho, I like him. Well, I don't know much about him, but he goes. Society is just a clearing in the woods. We talk about civilization like it's some big deal. It's a, like just the, for a while, the forest has cleared back. Well, look, we've got televisions and towers, and then whoop, <laughs> nature will reclaim it. So for hundreds of thousand years, we were quite happy with the berries and the hunting and the yeah. shaman, and now. Yeah, and of this. course, you know, and so, 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 so we kind of turn our back very much on 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 the kind of individual, on the so the yeah. essential connect, connected part of our humanity, as, as you say. Well, it's not in the book. This, but when I was living in Australia, I did a story on um, a place called Rookwood Cemetery outside Sydney, and it's the biggest cemetery in the Southern Hemisphere. It's like a city of dead people, oh, and it's all, um, <laughs> and it's all um, uh, kind of cordoned off in terms of the cultures. There's a Chinese cemetery and an, an Islamic cemetery, you know, all that stuff. That's a bit of a downer, isn't it? Uh, yeah, Even when you're dead, you can't mix with the wrong group. <laughs> it's very tribal. Don't you bury me with them lot. But it's true. Well, you'll yeah. just be some mush. I mean, All right, then. Actually, it's a good point. You know, it goes back to our tribal selves. We are tribal. And, you know, even even in death, we can't escape the tribishness. But I asked the guy who kind of managed the cemetery, I said, who's the worst? Who's the worst people for kind of tending the graves, coming back? And he said, oh, Christians, by far and away. All the other cultures, you know, they keep coming back. You know, they, they 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 polish the grave. They bring gifts and flowers. You know, some of the um, some of the races have like annual events where they come and have little parties by the graveside. But Westerners, they come once or twice and then they just just go to shit. And that's individualism. You know, that's you know, we, 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 even down to the kind of the unit of the family. You know, once they're dead, oh, they're dead now. They're irrelevant. We're much more <laughs> kind of me focused. And, really? than I didn't understand that at the time. I thought, why are we so bad? But now I get it. It's because we're individualists. Because yeah, right. We don't have. We don't connect to the past. We don't see ourselves as part of a linear tradition. Yeah, yeah. And and it's the family. We're not. We're far less family minded than those other Eastern cultures. And Monday. It's no, no coincidence. I miss you, Granddad. Tuesday. I miss you, Granddad. Wednesday. I'm going roller skating. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that's, yeah. That's uh, that's out of order. Um, see that when you were talking about Confucius and like and and like having a different relationship with self and selfies. Is there anything in that stuff that can be useful to us? You know, collective ideologies that we can somehow ransack, propagate, and uh, yeah, somehow I, I, I think one of the things that surprised me from my research was that 
you know, especially on there, we always talk about this kind of crazy myth they have that there was once a better time and it was Ooh. there was once a perfect England and make America great again. But actually, there was a, a better time in a way. Um, and I'm not saying we should go back to that time because we can't now because it's kind of because of James time Hatton, because of time. But but but. It, Bloody time! I was surprised to see that that, that the middle middle twentieth century was a time of much more equality. They called it, some economists call it a period. They call it the Great Compression. It was this compression between the, you know the the the. the, the of, of inequality, there was much less inequality, and that was this era of, of regulation, of high taxation, of unionisation. But it was also before globalisation, so you know, we, you know, so, so, so it was a kind of a simpler time. Um, but but what but but what kind of knocked, I think, our into our our kind of individualist selves into that era of um, more collectivisation was disaster. Unfortunately, it was the Great Depression, and it was the First and the Second World Wars, and, and those periods of massive crisis knocked us into going right. We need to start looking after each other. We can't have a world of war and economic disaster and all that stuff. So uh, that's the thing that worries me, is that it, it takes a bit of a disaster to kind of knock us into a, a, a more collective reality. Oh, Naomi Klein, she'll tell you that what happens is we get shocked and terrified by sort of, you know, shock doctrine, she calls it, like we get all terrified, and then you act on, on the basis of your individual interests. And, of course, like it became clear, and old Adam Curtis says that the myth of a time is often contrary to its truth. So if we're told we're individuals, we're individuals, we're individuals, the reality is you are a blob of humanity. That's what, you know, so like we're all like here worrying about our bloody haircuts and our selfies and our Converse trainers. I've got these ones that are made out of Nikes now. Oh, they're my, nice. My shoes are made out of Nikes. They're, yeah, they're gorgeous. Aren't they amazing? Yeah, box fresh. Still going to die. Not even Still any, dying. any dirt on the soles. Yeah, no, I've got a bit of dirt there. It worries oh. me very badly. Oh, yeah, will. Imperfect. I know, I know. I think about them sometimes. But it's actually, basically, I've just got two little worries on the end of my legs. Because I'm just thinking, oh, some, I'm getting some bubble gum on him. Or oh, I ate that burger. What if the beetroot falls on it? Oh, no. Issa, so like we're thinking of ourselves as individuals, but really we're just being marketed at, and we're fulfilling our needs. Oh, like so, you know, like because most people aren't gonna be a Beyonce, but heroes of well, not heroes, icons have often functioned in that way. You know, like you know, you hold that aspirational object up, and instead of you know, express like you know, the essence of Beyonce is a woman who can express her womanhood mm. through creativity and potency, feminine mm. goddess energy. But you'll settle for or I'll buy the same headphones as well. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely, like yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, you will, yeah. I mean, so, it's, of course, it, a lot of that's used for, for kind of marketing purposes. And I think the other thing, the interesting thing to, to sort of think about in all this is before, you know, any of this sort of ancient Greece stuff it, is all that tribal stuff. And the fact that, that that we are a particular kind of tribal species, uh, you know, we're like the chimps in, the, in that we're not only groupish, that we, but we attack other groups. And, and you that see that a lot on social media. So... In, uh, what, what, you know, in the in the human tribe, as in the chimp tribe, the status is always changing. Who's at the top is always in kind of in flux. A, a chimp troop leader will be up there for four to five years. So we we, we are preoccupied with status, um, and and we see that kind of. Um, uh, Do you think uh, that was going on in the um, like we we stray into anthropology a little bit when we, you and I are talking because we're trying to understand an essential truth, aren't we? That goes beyond the limited and limiting context of civilization, which is only a, a blip. But you say in the hunter gatherer tribes. What would have been like a little chimp society with your only chief for a minute and then someone's trying to knock your nut off with a rock. Well, in chimps, it's four to five years, which is interesting because we see that in the electoral like cycle in humans. Exactly. It's exactly the same. Four more years. I had a banana. Four <laughs> more years. I had a banana. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
but 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 that's why. But that's kind of how social media works, isn't it? Like you know, we're constantly worried about how many likes we've got, how, you know, our, our relative status, status updates, and all this stuff. But the other thing is that is is that is that we are aggressively tribal, like like you know, our, our, our relatives, the chimpanzees, that we kind of attack these other groups. And that's I think that's another really sort of dangerous aspect of social media. Is it encourages these very ancient kind of tribal circuitry in us that work, that when someone breaks the codes of our in group, we sort of go want to go off and kind of tear their limbs off in a sense I know, ostracize terrible. them attack them but this is really ancient stuff this is really powerful tribal circuitry in the in the human self that things like you know these, these kind of twitter storms are kind of feeding off tell us will what happened to you when you were in a scottish monastery <laughs> tell us will what happened to you when you met an east end villain <laughs> well the villain actually he was the tribal guy so this is a really interesting guy called john pridmore who um, he he uh, he's just a classic East End gangster. I love him. Yeah, he's he's a really interesting guy. Uh, and was right, I like son. Yeah, son he oh, he looks exactly him. like you expect. Like he's about he's just like seven foot with a big leather coat on and oh, bald head, and God. he sat there like with his fist down for the for like, fist yeah, like, like that with, with a big silverback fist with a big watch down there. Kettle. To you'd, if you want him to like, you'd call that a kettle. <laughs> big kettle. <laughs> yeah. at, oh crikey! But, but, I love a cockney me. But but, but but he was living his life in in that classic chimpish tribish way when he was a gangster. You know, he 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 was an enforcer for a drug. For the for the drug gang that what well, they call it the firm, their firms in the East I was with the firm, and yeah. I was enforcing the drug gang. <laughs> yeah. If someone didn't pay their money, I'd kick them right in the shins. Yeah, well, he was, that was him, was it? Torture and uh, and beat people. Yeah, yeah. So so that, I've way, done some things were a bit naughty back in the day. Will very <laughs> yeah. naughty indeed. They yeah. use like gentle words to describe stuff, don't they? Shooter. Yeah. Well, no, he didn't have a shooter. Because if, if he had a shooter, it meant he went, went to prison for longer. So he had a machete. He, he had a special... Excuse me, machete. He, he, had a, he, he had a special... A bespoke leather coat that had a pocket for a Jif lemon bottle with um, uh, acid in it. Some sort of acid in it. Bleach, it might have been. To put in your eyes. And a oh. machete in the other one. Oh, are we having pancakes? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But then he had a massive nervous breakdown and became Catholic. See, he found the Lord, did he? Yeah, he found too? the Lord. Oh, yeah, I like the sound yeah. of him. So, you, why was he important in your research? Because he was my example of the tribal self. So he, you know, so so his, he, you know, he, his, he, his, his gang was the tribe, and they would go to war with the opposing tribe, um, uh, which was obviously the rival drug stickers who were also trying to sell drugs in these kind of West End clubs. But also, the, 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 his uh, nervous breakdown was really important as well because it tells us a really important thing about the self and it's that the idea of the self as a storyteller so there's this really interesting idea from neuroscience about called confabulation and it's this idea that we all have this voice in our heads this kind of internal monologue that's constantly narrating all our events yeah you know him so he's saying this is why you did what you did this is why you said that this is why you're a good guy this is what you should do next um but it has no access to the rest of our unconscious so it's essentially making it up it's just telling you this story. So, so you have no it's access to the real reason. reasons why you're doing what you're doing. So it's quite a terrifying concept because it's saying that we have no real idea why we do what we do, why we feel what we, why we, feel, what we feel. But we, the only reason that we feel like we, ha- like we do is because his voice is telling us and it's just making stuff up. So when he had his nervous breakdown, what happened was he, 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 he punched this guy and he thought he'd killed him. And his boss, Buller, went, you better have a couple of nights off, John, because uh, otherwise you're going to get in prison. So he went back to his flat. He, he started smoking a joint. He put on some porn. And then the television started talking to him and saying, listing all the things he'd done. So now, John was brought up as a, in a Catholic household. And so his confabulation, immediately, his explanation immediately was, well, that voice is obviously the devil. And that means that he's telling me I'm going to go to hell. And that means that if I'm going to save myself from hell, I need to pray to God. So he runs outside, falls to his knees. Naked? 
not naked, unfortunately. Um, but perhaps with a boner, he was watching porn. And then, and then, he, and then he runs. Um, I like to think so. Well. <laughs> must, and then he, he runs to his mum's house and he knocks on his mum's door. Ooh, get rid of the erection first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it, Better finish this off, mum. <laughs> and his mum opens the door and he says, uh, "What are you doing, John? What are you doing, John?" He said, "Mum, mum, something's amazing, something." And he said, "What's that?" Well, put some trousers on, John. <laughs> before we just talk about your realization, put some trousers on. And he says, "Mum, I've found God." And she goes, "At two o'clock in the morning." Which I, thought was, which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> but, that, but his confabulation was, and, and that saved him from madness, uh, was that actually you've not had a nervous breakdown. You're not having a psychotic incident, which is what I believe happened to him that night. He, he, you know, he, 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 he took a story from his culture, which was the, the Catholic Christian story of what reality is and what our place in that reality is. Yeah, but and psychotic he, episodes, just a secular narrative for what happens in the consciousness. It's only deck chairs and Titanic time, and it we're just sort of saying that's, how, that's one way of describing it. Epiphany, the sudden revelation of essence, or breakdown. I reckon a little while ago I had one of those things, but because, my, because I like to think that my inner critic now, that voice of confabulation, I think I've given mine access to the deep, deep that you're one like the, when you went doing that research and heard all those recordings so my inner voice now I think I trust that little guy also actually I don't entirely trust it I always use other people's information and data like I go I'm thinking of doing this thing and if some people go oh no that's a terrible idea I don't do it you know so like I've got older men further down the path than me that will sort of tell me no no Russell that's what that was was a mental breakdown mate you want to but like at my age it's very conventional I've understood that you sort of that you question your identity and go hold on a minute what the hell have I been doing like you just said about the suicide stat and like so i think with your man there it feels like you know yeah the the interpretive tool was you know he had the vocabulary of christianity and we have the vocabulary of neuroscience but the essential there was one essential event and that essential event was i want to break out of the pre-existing narrative and in a way it doesn't matter does it if you term it as epiphany or breakdown as long as what happens subsequently is you stop being an east end gangster going around with a jiff lemon of acid and a machete and start being a monk that sounds like a cool thing well it's it's, it's an excellent point. I mean, because yes, I agree with you. It, it was it was great that he didn't end up medicated in a psychiatric institute, as his mother did at one point in his life. And it's also great that he now goes around preaching the gospel to young Sounds children. Great. I love a Cockney Cockney because <laughs> I was thinking just there about a Cockney priest. I would love a Cockney priest. And this one, yeah. he's got a Cockney monk here. Yeah, it was Where weird. Is he? Well, he, he's around. He, he's around. It was a very odd moment when I was. Why are you bothering him? I was talking <laughs> talking to my mum, and who's very very Catholic, and and she said to me, "What have you been doing?" I said, "Oh, I just." I've been. I actually interviewed a Catholic mum because trying to say something that might entertain her. Yeah, and she said, "Oh, what was that?" I said, "Oh, he's this guy called John Pridmore, this gangster." And she went, "Oh, yes, I've sat next to him at mass." And I was. They go the same place. Well, I don't know what happened, but like it it immediately sort of. (laughs) You want to carry on your research a bit more with your own family? It was a bit. It was a bit like deflating. I was full of this story. Jump in there! Don't be (laughs) deflated by that. Bloody when it's some sort of movement in the sixties, you sit around rooting around in archive. Your own mother says, "I've met someone that you've been interviewing," and you switch off. Show a bit of attention, Will. (laughs) That's it. I should have done. Focus. Yeah. Yeah. I like the sound of that gangster. I like the sound of your book a great deal. Now, what about that thing that I was saying at the beginning of the interview that I was playing a, a computer game and the bits where it's a pirate and it's very, uh, like when I'm Assassin's Creed and it's all the elaborate missions where I'm robbing Spanish galleons. I like it. But then when it goes back to the subplot where it reveals that you're not really a Spanish or you're not really a pirate, you're a man in an office pretending to be a pirate and the games you have to play in the office are crap, like Pac-Man looking games. I get bored with them, but really you're probably on a motor neuron level doing the same thing, twiddling your thumbs about 
moving in different directions. But when you're being the pirate, it seems like you're smashing over the edge of a barrel and you're doing all cool stuff. And when you're in the office, it's boring. So are we essentially just one as a kind of an experiencing entity, consciousness itself, uh, receiving data that you said was like electronic impulses and organising it into all different stories, looking for stories that are attractive to us, either because of some personal inflection or because the culture of our time validates and enjoys that story. Yeah, totally. So my last book was called The Heretics and it was about exactly this. It's about how we experience our lives as story, about the brain conjures this story. One neuroscientist I spoke to, Chris Frith, described us, the illusion the brain makes for us is it makes us the, the invisible actor at the centre of the world. And what it does to keep us, keep us motivated, to keep us happy and kind of forward kind of moving is it creates this narrative of meaning I, I call the brain the hero maker it, you know it makes us this kind of hero it, it, it creates this very simplistic story for us to, to for us to sort of sort of live in you know live in the middle of and the computer game that you describe is quite is, is quite fascinating actually because as you describe it when you're the pirate the swashbuckling pirate your life is full of meaning and you're this heroic morally you know justified i don't know are you a pirate yeah he is a pirate but he, what he's doing is a little bit ambiguous because there's quite a lot of murder and bloodshed well. but yeah. You sense that he's That's on a journey. That's ruined my theory a bit. No, but, but no, it yeah. doesn't rule because he's on a journey of discovery. Yeah. Because there's some sub-characters that go, when are you going to give up this piracy and help us with oh, our bigger cause? So there's cause. subtext here. There's yeah, subtext. okay, yeah, yeah. But it's this very, again, very very ancient Greek story of, of, of meaning and of this individual kind of going out into the world and causing great effects. And, and then suddenly you'll switch back into this office thing and you're just playing this boring game, Moving Counters. Yeah, and it's so, too close to the actual reality of what you're doing, sat up at night playing on a PlayStation because you've come it's up a mean from a trick they play. adrenaline. It's like smacking you around the face. Why has he done that in the yeah. game? It almost, it's quite meta. It's quite meta that he's saying that the reality of the pirate is not your ultimate reality. and it may, because, But that is, in a, again, a sort of a religious idea. Like when you say this thing that your one's ego matrix makes you the hero of your own life, these scriptures that I'm forever banging on about, never bother bloody reading, tell you that there is no such thing as self. You are not the hero of your own life. You're just experiencing this data and organising it. To, you know, But really, you are part of the whole. There is oneness. That is the central tenet of all Eastern thinking, Separation is an illusion. You yeah. are experiencing well, this, but that you are one. You are one with all phenomenon. Yeah, well, I think the, I think the all being one thing. I think that goes back to these Confucian ideas of, of you know of collectivity. And, but I think the part of that 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 the modern kind of scientific canon do, does bear out is that is that is that we are that it is this kind of illusion that that we are living in this kind of. The story uh, which we live our lives in the middle of is, is, a, is, a, is a construction. I mean, what do, we, what do we really, really know? All we know is the information that's hitting our senses, yeah. and, our, and our senses experience that information as millions and millions of little electrical pulses, and it uses those electrical pulses like computer code to build reality that we experience as, as real, all the colours and shapes and patterns and sounds. Uh, and it is a construction, and it is a story, and, and, you know, we, and it makes us feel important and meaningful, like the pirate in Assassin's Creed. But really... Strip all that away, and we, what are we? We're the guy in the office with the tiddlywinks. Me and my tiddlywink <laughs> alone again. Will, I've really enjoyed this. What five books should people, obviously, take for granted that people should read your book, Selfie? What five books do you think I should go away and read? It's a new thing I'm going to do. Ah. It's good, isn't it? What, that, that pertain to these ideas? No, right? See, you're clever. Right, now, you, clever man Will, tell us five books to read and you'll go, like, basically it's your five favourite books that you reckon we should read and we'll get a buzz out of it. Uh, okay, cool. Okay, like well, me, uh, I'd go probably say Sapiens off the top of my head. Yeah. 
I guess the two, the, the, the two books that are kind of essential to this is The Geography of Thought by Richard Nisbet, which talks about these Greek ideas. Cool. There's um, The Happiness Hypothesis by an American neuropsychologist um, called Jonathan Haidt, Haidt, H-A-I-D-T. Yeah, let's call that Haidt, because we don't have to be called Haidt, do we? No, I don't want to call him Haidt. Let's call it kind of, let's call it Haidt. Jonathan Haidt. The book I'm reading at the moment, which is... I like, hate you! <laughs> It, it, um, it, uh, I love The People of the Abyss by Jack London. Have you read The People of the Abyss by Jack London? No. People Brilliant. of the Abyss? Yeah, so he, so, so it's an amazing book. What, in what wrote White Fang? Yeah, exactly. So, and what he did, he wrote a non-fiction book in, like, I think it was 1902, where he went in, he, he saw the East End of London as this amazingly dangerous, wild place, which it was, Ooh. and he dressed up as a poor person and went into, and an adventured into... He was playing computer games in real life. Yeah, but it's amazing. It's an amazing book, and it's, and, and it's really, like, some of those old books are very difficult to read, but it's Hello, really... Hello, I am a street urchin. <laughs> That's exactly... Have you all got a sixpence or a farming? <laughs> so he... I can buy a potato or sank? He goes into a second-hand clothes shop and gets all the garb and gets dressed stuff and stuff and you know he talks about going into that what's that famous is it cooks the map shop still there in Covent Garden where all the adventurers used to go and get their maps of darkest Africa and he said I'm going to journey into the east end of London and they went oh we can't help you with that that's that's far too dangerous (laughs) (laughs) so that's a really extraordinary kind of work of non-fiction which I don't think sort of people kind of know into uh, the abyss about into the people of the abyss the people of the abyss and its description of what the east end was like in those days is just extraordinary (laughs) (laughs) get out of my pub (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry. Could I have a yard of ale, please, my man? Oh, fucking fuck you to death with my boner. Sorry, I tried to bring together too many threads and it led to swearing. (laughs) So, well, uh, what's the next one? We've done three. Done three. Oh, what else can I talk about? I can talk about... um uh, Stasi Land by Anna Funder. That's one of my favourite non-fiction books. Ooh, Stasi Land, another book. Yeah, so she goes out into East Germany and discovers about the about, about the Stasi. But I guess the book that I, the, my, my favourite, the book that made me want to be a non-fiction writer, is a book called Bad Wisdom by uh, Bill Drummond, ex of the KLF, yeah. and Mark Manning, ex of Zodiac Mind Orp and the Love Reaction. And 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 so b- b- back in the, I Bad think, Wisdom. Yeah, it's an amazing travelogue. They, they decided to try and save the world by driving to the North Pole in a Ford Escort and, and putting an icon of Elvis Presley on it. And, and, it's, their kind of, and it's their story of the, them doing that. And, and it's, um, the, the, first, the first line is, I am shit scared, shit scared of almost everything. And I remember opening that book going, God, this book's going to be amazing. And it is, it's an amazing book. I've even got this tattoo on my shoulder. What is this tattoo? Let's have a look. It's a, it's a zodiac mind. There's, there's a line that he says in the book that refrains, we are Zen masters and we know what the fuck we're talking about. Well, like that, mate, that yes. crucifix. What's them two triangle things? It's the Z. It's not a very good tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's a Z in the oh, middle. Right, yeah, in the middle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I've always had trouble seeing that. <laughs> Thanks. Right, it was a Z. It's so a Z a, actual, actual Z has got When there was Superman a on my duvet down. when I was a boy... Right, I had Superman. I used to see the yellow bit and not the red bit. But I never knew until I was old that that was a red S in the middle of his chest. They used to try and when I try and draw that logo, I draw the yellow bits. I never had, knowing that there was a red S in the middle. I had a Superman wallpaper, exactly the same thing. The yellow, what are those yellow like yellow, whale shapes? They're like yeah, whales. Because it's an S in the middle. Yeah. That's an S. We were looking at the wrong colour, Will. <laughs> We wasted. <laughs> we were wasting our lives. Gareth just did a Benny Hill <laughs> salute there, which really brought me back to myself. All right, thanks, man. No, that was really you. cool. Thanks for those books. Thanks for your time. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. That was Under the Skin with Russell Brand. If you like that podcast, give us five stars on iTunes. It's sponsored by me, Russell Brand, on my Rebirth tour. If you want tickets, go to russellbrand.com. Mwah. Give us a cuddle. Oh, that was so good. Thank you. I really so enjoyed much, it. Russell. That was such a great.